43 through 45 um, first, and we'll see there that Jesus is going to reaffirm his purpose and his commitment. So he's, he's going to double down and remind his um, disciples as to what, it, what he's planning to do and why he's here. And we're going to see that they completely miss it. Um, and then in verses 46 through 48, we're going to see the danger of not submitting to the Spirit and doubting our position in God's kingdom. So he has secured a position for us. And when we doubt, that opens us up to um, the attacks of the enemy. In verses 49 through 50, we're going to see how we need to rejoice in the advance of the gospel. And then in 51 through 56, we'll see that zeal and passion don't always equate to holiness. And God's power is for his glory, not our own, our own glory, or our own comfort. And then finally, we're going to see where Jesus is making it clear that there are costs to following him. It, it's, there's an eternity of value that comes with it. And, and if, you know, the cost benefits don't even compare but it doesn't mean that there are no costs in this life to being a follower of Jesus. So in backing up to verses 43 through 45, um, this is what Jesus says to the disciples. He says, but while they were marveling at everything he was doing, they being the crowd around him, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they didn't understand this saying. And it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So Jesus is not fooled by us. He knows how fickle and wayward our hearts are. And he knows that we can change our opinion on a whim. And so he, he has a lot of people marveling at what he's doing And he has kind of this big popular following at this point. So he's kind of a big deal in the region where he lives. But but he's not buying into any of that. He knows what's in the heart of a man. And he's trying to get this point across to his disciples. Uh, Unfortunately, they're missing it. Because we see earlier in Luke 9, where Peter confesses Jesus' death. And, um, or confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. And so... Um, Jesus is, is, you know, affirms his messiahship, his lordship. And this is this really kind of high spot for the disciples where they're really finally starting to kind of truly understand who he is. And, and then right after that, in verses 21 and 22, he says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. So the disciples are finally understanding, starting to understand that he's the Messiah, and they're starting to understand who Jesus says he is, but they're still a long way from understanding his purpose or his ultimate message. And we're going to see that here in a second when we transition out of this. Um, but he is explicitly, he tells them he's going to suffer in 22, many things at the hands of men, and then he comes back while all these people are marveling, So instead of kind of basking in the glory, he comes back to this point and says, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. So he says, what you see, everything looks awesome, but don't." he's reaffirming his purpose and his commitment to his purpose to go and to die for the sins of the world so that he can usher and bring about a path to God for all people. So if we look at the next set of verses... um, 
we see in, in that set of verses, Jesus is not insecure about who he was. He knew he was the Messiah. He, and in, the, in that, he knew what his, his uh, ultimate purpose was. But you know who was insecure in their positions? The disciples. And that's what we're getting ready to see right here. So in, the, in what I read in 46 through 48, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. That being God the Father. And he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So here, we get this really non-flattering picture of the disciples. And so, we also see this in Mark 9. So this gets recorded twice in the Gospels. Of them basically having this argument and trying to exalt themselves over each other and jockey around for position. And so, we don't know exactly how Jesus knew what they were talking about. It said Jesus knowing their reasoning. So he'd been with these guys for a long time. So maybe this is not the first time this argument has come up. Or maybe he can tell by what he overhears in their body language, what they're talking about. Or maybe this is an instance where his divine nature imparted something into his human nature. And he, even though he doesn't hear the conversation, he knows what's going on. But however it happened, Jesus has this clear window into what's happening with these guys now. And um, he, he has to be thinking to himself, Probably not because he was the Messiah. But I would be thinking to myself, you idiot! Did you just hear what I said? What more do I have to do? I, God's son, came down here to be with you. I'm going to die so that you can have eternal life and make peace with God. And you are arguing about who is the greatest among you? Are you paying attention to anything that I'm saying? And if I sound like a dad talking to my kids... Sometimes that's how I talk to my kids, so you can pray for me. But um, they, are, they are not focused on their eternal security or their position with Jesus at all. They are completely focused on what we're naturally bent to in ourselves, is wanting to have the highest position, wanting people to seek us out and give us praise, wanting to have people acknowledge that we're important or have good gifts. And so they've fallen into this trap, and instead of listening to all that Jesus has to say, they are trying to exalt themselves. And Jesus said a lot of things that, apart from the Spirit, don't make sense. So if you read the Sermon on the Mount, you will see him saying, Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are persecuted. If this life is all there is, it doesn't make any sense to be sad and have people treat you terrible all the time. But he's trying to point us to the real lasting kingdom, which is the eternal joy that we're going to experience with God. That's the only way that we can make sense out of suffering in this life and have, it, have a real true meaning. And so these guys are completely, completely missing it at this point. But Jesus is gracious with them. And there are times we're going to see where he gives them a stern rebuke later in a, in a couple and two stories from now where James and John want to call down fire from heaven. But he's very gentle with them. So instead of calling them idiots, instead of saying, you know, they're completely dense for missing everything that he's just been saying prior to all this, he pulls a child next to him. Now, why does Jesus use a, a child as the example? 
So he gives it, and I think there's, I was joking about um, talking maybe unkind to my kids, but I think there's some, there is some advice here in dealing with relationships, whether it's friends, kids, whatever, in that he had every right to be angry at them and to come down hard on them, but he, he corrects them very gently with, um, with a uh, comparison of a child. So he brings the child. Now, why a child? Children, for the most part, don't have any authority. So when you're a kid, you don't really get to make a lot of decisions. You pretty much have to go along with your parents. So you don't decide where you're going to go on vacation, which relatives you're going to visit. You don't decide most of the time what you're going to eat. Anytime you go into a class, whether it's at school or a church or an extracurricular activity, there's a teacher or someone else who's in charge and is kind of telling you what's going to happen. Um, children, for the most part, don't get, you know, don't decide when they go to bed. About the only thing you get to decide as a child is which stuffy you're going to sleep with when you go to bed. But pretty much everything else, somebody else is making the decisions for you. And so children are helpless in a lot of ways. I mean, when we're first born, we can't move around, we can't feed ourselves. And because children have a low position and, and they're relatively helpless and kind of have to depend on their parents or those around them, I think that's why we're often more outraged when somebody really takes advantage of a child um, as opposed to an adult. And so Jesus is saying, this child who has really no position, no standing in society, no ability to make decisions for himself or herself, this is what you're like, spiritually speaking. I mean, how absurd would it be if a two-year-old came into your room and said that she wanted to move out, get a job, and be independent? You would laugh at the absurdity, right? Yeah, we do that a lot of times. We come to God and we want to rely on our own resources, or we don't even go to God. We want to rely on our own resources, our own abilities. And as I've been going over this passage, this has been really convicting for me because I have a tendency to, to want to do that, to try to fix my own problems uh, and try to you know think that I have the abilities to do things without God. And this has been really just encouraging and admonishing for my heart that a lot of times I'm that two-year-old who, who says he wants to move out and be independent and conquer the world. And God is saying, you have no hope. If I don't reach down and I don't make peace for you and I don't adopt you into my family, you, you are eternally lost forever. You have no hope. You have to depend on me. And so Jesus is very gently correcting them. And he ends with this, for he who is least among you is the, among you all is the one who is great. In another place, he talks about John the Baptist and how among people on earth, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. But then he comes back and he says, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven, that person is greater than John the Baptist. And so Jesus is not saying John the Baptist isn't going to be in heaven or he's not going to be honored. What he's saying is, is this life is so temporary. It's such a murky view of what the true lasting reality is. And so our, des our desires here shouldn't be to exalt ourselves, to jockey for position. It should be to submit ourselves and to serve as the Lord wants us to serve and trust that he is going to work everything out in the end for his kingdom. And we are secure in him. We don't have to doubt our position. Um, Hendrickson in his commentary on these verses 43 through 48, he summarized it really well in a short sentence. He said, on the one hand, you have marvelous self-sacrifice. So Jesus says, I'm going to go die for you. On the other hand, you have base self-centeredness. So right after he said, I'm going to give up everything for you, they are trying to... To, to hoard everything they can and exalt themselves over others. But I do think this argument is natural. 
Now, I did not say it was good, but I do think that's our natural bent is to want to try to, you know, jockey for ourselves, put us, uh, put ourselves over each other. And if you're in church long enough, things are going to happen that you don't understand. People are going to be in leadership positions you don't understand. Decisions are going to be made that maybe you don't agree with or you don't understand. And Paul spends an enormous amount of the New Testament trying to correct us on these issues. And so when Jesus leaves, he knows the church is going to be birthed. So these 12 disciples and some of his other followers are going to take his message everywhere. And so with that, unfortunately, we're still, when we become believers, we're under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, but we're not free of sin. So Paul spends so much of the New Testament encouraging us to live purely, to be servant leaders, not to gossip or backbite or jockey for position. We've got to trust that even if things are happening that we don't understand, that God is sovereignly working his plan and that he is going to make it all right and for his glory in the end. So when we transition to verses 49 and 50, John kind of continues the conversation here and he says, John answered, so Jesus has just said this part about serving and whoever's least among you all be great. John says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So we don't know exactly why Jesus, I mean, John brought this up, um, if it popped in his mind after hearing what Jesus said, or if he's connecting the two pieces together. But something has sparked inside of him that he wants some clarification from Jesus on now. And, and that something is, is they've seen somebody doing some miracles that were not kind of part of their, their inner circle. So Jesus had 12 disciples, so 12 people that he set, up, set aside for himself, that he called individually, told them of their position. And then he had some other followers that were with him, and then he had these kind of fringe followers who wanted to check out what he was doing. So at this point, he's traveling with a pretty big entourage. There are a lot of people, and when he goes into villages, his, his reputation will kind of go before him, and then people will come out and check out who he is. So there were a lot of people around Jesus, and the disciples don't know who this guy is that is casting out demons. So he's obviously not one of the twelve. Um, he might have been part of the other part of Jesus' followers, but it seems like the disciples would have had some familiarity with him. Um, he may have just been somebody who had heard the message recently and was believing in who Jesus said he was, but he hadn't kind of joined, you know, the inner circle where he's following around with Jesus consistently. But whoever he was, he appears to be a person of genuine faith because we don't see Jesus come in and say, oh yeah, that guy was a heretic. Thank you for rebuking him. He, he says, no, if this, if this guy is working in advance of the gospel, then don't hinder the work that he's trying to do. And so, again, I mentioned it before, but when Jesus leaves, he, he's going to leave behind these 12 disciples and some other followers to essentially start his church. So to start the message of salvation for all of mankind. And so he knows that over time, there are going to be some problems. And if you look through church history, you'll see a lot of instances where there have been, you know, dissensions, uh, factions, schisms, um, you know, denominations going in different directions. And so unfortunately, we're constantly fighting against, um, we're constantly focusing on sometimes what we disagree about. 
And so Jesus is saying, look, if, if these are people of genuine faith, you need to rejoice in the advance of the gospel. You don't need to exalt yourself or feel like you have a better position because you're Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian or Lutheran. If these are people of genuine faith. We want to pray and rejoice in what God is doing through them. Or even if you take it at a more detailed level, if you hold to Reformed theology or dispensationalism or continuation of the sign gifts or cessation of the sign gifts or grace giving or tithing, any of these things, these, these can all be things that we can disagree on and have genuine faith in who Jesus is and genuine faith in the gospel and that God is working to advance his gospel. And so I'm not, I do want to issue one word of caution. I'm not saying that we don't fight to hold sound doctrine that we don't fight against false teachers. There are plenty of examples of that in the Bible. One of my favorite stories in all the Bible is Acts 19, where there's some guys trying to cast out a demon, and they're not genuine followers of the disciples, and or, or not the disciples. They're not genuine followers of Jesus. And the demon basically says, look, I know you're not of the faith. He overwhelms them and whips them so bad that they all have to run away naked and bleeding. Like that, you cannot get beat up worse then you had to run away with no clothes and you're bleeding everywhere. So I'm not, there, there are plenty of examples in the Bible where, um, you know, there are issues that we need to break faith on. And so I'm not saying, oh yeah, we should bring in the new age and try to, you know, work with them to plant missionaries. Um, so there are, there are, you know, there are genuine things that we need to break fellowship over, but there are a lot of things that are secondary and tertiary to the faith that are important, but the gospels can still go forward regardless. And um, you do, if you read much about um, missions, a lot of missionaries on the field will cooperate better than, you know, uh, from different denominations will co- cooperate better than what sometimes what we see like in developed Europe or the U.S. because they don't have any choice. There's no one else there. And so they have to come together and work together for the advance of the gospel. Um, and Jesus, one last point I want to make here. So the way this is phrased is it says, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So Jesus is kind of making this point. He doesn't say the one who is not against you or neutral. He says the one who is not against you is for you. There's this reality that once you're confronted with who Jesus is, there's no more middle ground. You're either for him or against him. It's impossible to try to remain in Switzerland and say, I'm not going to pick a side. Jesus said, that he was the son of God, and he was the only path to get to God. So you, you either believe that and are ushered into his family and adopted into eternal salvation, or you don't. There's, there's not a middle ground when you're confronted with Jesus. He demands faith, or you are basically you know, rejecting his offer of salvation. So that is important for us to keep in mind. Luke 51 through 56, again, we get another not very flattering picture of who the disciples are. So this is a real pivot in the book. So right here in 51, Jesus kind of, the whole book is going to turn from him establishing himself as the Messiah to him moving toward his purpose of, the, of dying and rising from the grave. And so um, through the first part of the book, we've seen, you know, the prophecies about Jesus coming. We've seen him be born, we've seen him develop into a man, we've seen him become, a, you know, develop disciples, have a following, begin to teach people, do miracles. We're going to continue to see a lot of those things, but Luke wants us to know 
the tone from here on out is Jesus is focused on heading to the cross. He knows what's coming. And so it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because he had his face set toward Jerusalem. And when the disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And then he went on to another village. So here we're going to see Jesus handle these disciples a little bit differently. So instead of kind of uh, gently give them a, a, a correction and instruction by using a story, he's going to turn and, and directly rebuke them. And so Jesus makes it clear from the beginning what his purpose is. In Hebrews 1, 2 through 3, this is what it says. But in the last days, he has spoken to us by his son, meaning he being God, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So all this is talking about Jesus' position, his deity, his standing. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, at the right hand of the majesty on high. So this is a kind of a clear, succinct purpose of, or, or capture of who Jesus was. He was the son of God. He, he's the one who through, who through whom all things are held together. His purpose was to make purification of sins, to offer adoption into God's family. He's done that, and now he's taken his rightful place on the throne of God. So Jesus is heading toward this purpose. And so he sets his face to Jerusalem because that's where it's all going to go down. So he's starting his journey there. So he gets his group together, says we're going to go to Jerusalem. They have to cross through Samaria to get there. So they head into Samaria. They're not very far into the, into the journey, and bam, they hit some adversity. They get rejected on where to stay. And as I was thinking through this, I thought, I am really glad that Jesus did not read too much into his circumstances. I'm glad he didn't say, well, I was going to go die for the sins of the world and offer salvation, but we hit some adversity, so this is clearly not God's will. I guess we'll head back the other direction. So I don't know about you, but I'm thankful he didn't do that. He didn't read too much into his circumstances. And I'm not saying that God doesn't speak through circumstances, but there will be times when God is wanting us to do something and wanting us to accomplish something for his will, and Satan is going to do everything he can to stop it and to try to put roadblocks in front of it. There are going to be times that we have to just, that it's going to look like things are going wrong. It's going to look like things are falling apart. We're going to just have to cling to Jesus we have to be tenacious and holding on to the gospel and trust that God is going to fulfill and work his plan. And so, um, so he keeps going. And one of the things I like about Luke is I think he was an optimist because it says when the days drew near for him to be taken up. So he didn't say when the days drew near for him to die. He's already focusing on the ascension. And that's the real piece. That, that's the real piece that matters. Because if Jesus just dies then he's not really any different than any other man. But the fact that he came back from the dead and conquered death and sin, that is what completed the journey, and that is what completed us having access to God. And so Luke doesn't want us to miss that point. He says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, 
Um, so he's assuming the death is going to happen, but then the ascension is also going to come. So he heads toward Jerusalem. Now, why would the Samaritans say no? If you've been with us for a while, we talked about this in previous messages and previous passages. There was this extreme racism that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so the racism was so extreme that they persecuted each other. Josephus tells us, who is a a famous first history historian of, of the church, he tells us that often as Jewish people were headed to Jerusalem for religious festivals, when they would pass through Samaria, that they would be persecuted, and sometimes they would even be killed because the hatred between the the Jews and the Samaritans was so strong. Now, unfortunately, we still have racism in the U.S. today, and so we should have some frame of reference for for why racism exists and how it can manifest itself in in an ugly fashion. And Jesus is wanting to um, confront the disciples with this because these 12 men, who are all Jewish, are not Samaritans, are going to be left behind to birth his church. And so they're going to have to get past this racism. The gospel is going to have to conquer this racism in their hearts in order for the gospel to go to all the ends of the earth, which God's going to make clear that's his intention. So we should take hope that racism isn't more powerful than the gospel. And Jesus was able to use it in the hearts of these men that they did not exclude Samaria when it was time for the word to go forth. So now we get a a good look at James and John, and we do see more about them probably than any other disciple except Peter. We see by far the most about Peter. But we get this glimpse into these guys who Jesus nicknamed in Mark 3, sons of thunder. So they had this, evidently they had this kind of fiery personality. Um, I don't know if they feed off each other. A lot of times brothers can do that. But um, Jesus wants to go into to this village and, and take residence. They realize it's a bunch of Jewish people, so they say, no thanks. And so these guys are outraged. They're not having any disrespecting of their bro. And they are ready to bring down the heat on these obstinate Samaritans. So I do want to look at the good, which is brief, and then we're going to talk about the bad in this story for these guys. But they were high on loyalty, okay? So even though they wanted to singe these people with fire, they were high on loyalty. They were not happy that Jesus had been disrespected. And so they were ready to show their dedication and their affiliation to him. Um, They were also beginning to understand that supernatural things are possible with Jesus. And so I don't normally think if somebody's mean to me that I have the option to call down fire from heaven. But, you know, these guys are starting to realize that Jesus is the Messiah. People get healed Demons get cast out. Crazy things happen where food appears. So let's call down fire from heaven. Now, that's pretty much where the good ends, that they were loyal and they're starting to understand that that God is powerful and is supernatural. But unfortunately, there are about four things that they missed. So first, um, they're letting their own prejudice feelings against the Samaritans come out. I'm sure that a lot of their anger was over Jesus being disrespected but I'm sure a lot of it was fueled by, we're not taking that from these Samaritans. We're Jewish. We're better than them. That's how racism manifests itself. And so, again, we're getting a glimpse into their own prejudice that the gospel is going to have to conquer. And it's very difficult for us to love others for the gospel, but it is most difficult to love others for the gospel when they have treated us um, poorly, 
It is very hard to return kindness and love from meanness and spite. But that's what Jesus is, that, that, that when, that's the only way we can make sense out of the, the Sermon on the Mount when he says, blessed are those, blessed are you when you're persecuted, is the gospel is powerful enough to conquer the anger, to conquer the racism, to conquer the spite. So second, um, we see that they have completely forgotten Jesus' message, as I just mentioned, about blessing those who persecute you. Um, that's totally unnatural, but still, they're, they're kind of hearing what they want to hear from Jesus at this point and not hearing everything. And one of the most important points, thirdly, they are not understanding fully that God's power is for His glory, not for their glory, not for their comfort, not to satisfy their anger, that when God demonstrates and manifests His power, it's for His glory. And when we are seeking that for things that are not for His glory, we deserve to be rebuked as the disciples were. And the fourth thing, probably the most telling thing, is that they were not paying attention to Jesus' message, is they were ready to send unbelievers to eternal damnation, essentially over a no-vacancy sign. Now, it's more complicated than that because of the racism and the other stuff I mentioned, but they may have dehumanized these Samaritans so much to the point that they had no concern for their eternal, um, you know, where they're going to spend eternity, their, their eternal salvation, that they're willing to just, you know, go ahead and see these people killed and, and sent to have an eternity spent separate from God. So thankfully, the Lord is going to overcome these things. But again, we should take heart that these are several kind of stories in a row of non-flattering of the disciples, yet these are the guys he leaves behind and entrusts to build his church. So in verse 60, uh, 57 through 62, we're going to close with that. We get three people who... Um, have the opportunity to follow Jesus. Two volunteer, and one, Jesus says, follow me. Now, these are very brief intervals. I'll read the passage. It says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the, nest have, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow is fit for the kingdom of heaven. So these verses are, we just get a couple sentences on each person. They say something, Jesus responds. One thing we have to remember is Jesus can see into our hearts. He can see what's going on. He can see our true motives, our true desires. He sees beyond whatever body language or whatever words that we say. So I don't want you to take these five or six verses as a prescription on how to live. But so Jesus isn't saying don't live in a house, don't go to funerals. Um, that's not the intent here. He's looking into each one of these, each person's heart, and he's seeing something that needs to be dealt with. Um, whether it's, you know, an issue of, not wanting to be fully committed, not counting the costs. But the summary of all three of these is there are going to be costs in following Jesus. Now, the, the rewards are, are worth it, more than we can even describe. But it doesn't mean that if you're a follower of Jesus, you will not encounter trials, you will not encounter problems. 
He was the son of God, the ultimate follower of God, and it led to him being killed and crucified. So he's trying to communicate, look, if you're jumping on because you think this is cool or this is going to you know, make your life better here for this kingdom, the temporary kingdom, let me just make sure that you are counting the costs. And so the first man, we don't know if he decides or not, but Jesus, if you think about the three basic needs of life, the three that come to my mind are food, water, and shelter. So Jesus is saying, look, I don't even have one of these three covered. So if you're going to, if you're going to jump in and follow, you need to count the cost of what it means to really follow me. And as Sean shared earlier, in, in the earlier part of Luke 9, he says to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. So following Jesus does have costs, and that's what he's trying to get to with all of these people. The third person, he ends with the farming proverb. And he says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom. So the, um, if you've ever plowed, you can't, you can't keep looking back and plow straight. Um, and I was a youth pastor one summer when I was in college. And at the end of the summer, I was talking to one of the dads. And he was bragging on his son because that summer, his son had, his son had turned 16 and he had learned how to drive a tractor, and he had learned how to plow fields. And he was telling me when he, the, the way that you plow a field is you get on one side of the pasture, you look across the pasture, you find a fence post in front of you, and you don't take your eyes off that fence post, and you drive toward it the whole time. And then you turn around, and you find another fence post, and you drive back. And you do that all day long, staring at a fence post, driving. And he said, it's not that it's hard, but he said a lot of people can't do it because it's so simple you have to keep your mind and your eyes are prone to wander. And when that happens, the tractor or the plow goes off and you don't have a straight row. And so he was so proud that his son had learned to kind of train and focus his mind. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that there are so many distractions in life. There are so many things that want to weigh us down, that want to compete for our attention, that want to compete for our affection. But the main thing that is required is that we fix our eyes on him. So again, the main point for these three people is they need to understand the cost of following Jesus. And Scripture makes it clear that the eternal worth is, is far surpasses whatever cost that we have to give up in this life. But he's telling us to push forward, to look over the distractions of the world, to lock our gaze upon him so that we can inherit him in his glory. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your word. And even though it is hard sometimes and we have to, to grapple with it and we have to wrestle with it, I thank you for your truth. I thank you, Jesus, for being patient with us. I thank you that you don't lose your temper and deal with us in a way, Lord, that is damaging. I thank you that you always have our best interest at heart and that you know what's best for us even when we don't. So I pray, Lord, as we are dull as we are incapable of fully understanding the gospel apart from your Holy Spirit, I pray, Lord, that you will help us to take encouragement that you brought the disciples along. Help us to take encouragement in Philippians 3, Lord, where you promise that he who began the good work is faithful to complete it. I pray, Lord, that we will not succumb to the attacks of the enemy that, where he wants to constantly point out our failings and our misgivings and beat us beat us, Lord, with those things and try to haunt us with them. I pray, Lord, that we will remember that they have been removed. 
as far as the east is from the west. And that when you look at us, Lord, you see the perfect record of Jesus. And you accept us in, Lord, as your sons and daughters. And so I pray right now, Lord, as we go to a time of reflection, I pray that we'll be able to rejoice, that we'll be able to confess. I just pray that you would use this time, Lord, to build us up. In your name, amen.